0: Since I was born, I dreamed of being a Budweiser Clydesdale. Only problem is, I was born a donkey. So all my life, I practiced the Clydesdale walk and the Clydesdale pull. I even tried hair extensions on my lower legs. And then came my big interview. They looked me in the eye and said, "What makes you think you can be a Clydesdale, son?" And what was my answer? I must have said something, right? (laughs) Guys, down. Because it was affected. He never threw it guys to hit him. But he knocked him down and didn't he didn't care whether he hit him or not. If he hit him, he hit him. You know, a lot of people were intimidated by Bob, but the reputation was he would hit you, so I'd been beaten three times. No, 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 no.
1: No, ain't no digging in, Because you always hit it, you always hear that you know, word spread. <laughs> One of the things that helped me a lot was all of these stories that they they would tell each other about me and there was always that thought in the back of their minds that it might be inside he liked
0: to live off the legend because the legend made him tougher to hit <laughs>
1: Country, Pawleys Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball
2: Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K-Pod, and now here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. I never move in slow-mo Welcome to my dojo Those other pods are so-so I'm chill like bro yo Focus like a GoPro Ripping up this promo Check out the scoreboard Freaks, i am no-no It's going, it's going, going Yo, it's gone Your heart just stopped Cause Jake got strong and mighty Undefeated, I mean it Pull up the pods, scroll it down And read it Written, produced, directed, and mixed Dog on your lips And Ozzy Smith backflips Pick a tip, any tip Get onto it I got ridiculous pods Without forcing it You sit at home crying like a girl while I spread the gospel around the world Yo, the pods are written behind tracks that mixed in Smooth with the groove to make ears want to listen Add a little cut and a rhythm to back it up Another show to my name, now watch me stack them up You think another white rap back, but this ain't no ad My hobbies the rhymes, some people try to be black But that' about time I come out, call the show BKP and let me turn it out, yo Name Jake the Snake, born in 71 Dates, you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns Yo, experience, I've been a witness to glory and that's why I collect ball players and their stories. You heard? So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Pauly's Island South, Cagalacky, half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards k pod where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, your prince? What's Gucci? Welcome back to the BKP Dojo for yet another baseball bio and our always expanding catalog of archives. Show one hundred six and week one of the 2023 MLB All-Season, and I'm already going stir-crazy. I've been watching Arizona Fall League Baseball, and for the second year in a row, the surprise Saguaro's won the Arizona Fall League Championship, defeating the Peoria, Peoria Javelinas 6-5 to five, this past Saturday night in Scottsdale Stadium. And I was watching the Gigantes versus Escogito earlier today. Some Dominican League ball. I mean, I got a bad freaks. It's gonna be a long and anxious winter. Thankfully, I have this audience and this platform and you can depend on me. I'm top of the rotation baby. I'm gonna take the bump every week of the off season. I'm a horse. I don't need days off. I need more innings in fact. Hello everybody. <laughs> I'm Jake Robinson, I got your hookup, holler if you hear me. Packers K-Pod, the baseball pod spanning the globe. As every week I like to examine some of the more memorable characters, moments, stadiums, and pop culture references that have been woven into the DNA tapestry of the national pastime, as well as the history of America. And now, with the great game growing internationally... The world. Well, we got a lot of luggage to unpack this week. Uh, our topic this week, before we go in on that, and I feel as though I need to clean, clean up a little mess I made last week. It's been bothering me all week. It bothered me, bothered me the next day when I listened to the playback of the Walter Johnson show from last week. Which, regardless of my faux pas, I received some very positive messages about the totality of the show. And I want to thank you for those who sent them. But I did make a mistake. And I called Frank Howard, Frank Thomas, in the in that obit last week. And before it came on the air, I'm making my last second preparations and I tell myself, do not say Elston Howard. Remember, it's Big Frank. Big Frank Howard. Big Frank, I got it. Not Elston. Big Frank, Big Frank. And somewhere I started thinking about Frank Thomas. Big Frank, Big Hurt. The on-air light went on and bang, I'm out the shoot, Memorializing Frank Thomas and not Frank Howard. I could have went back and pitched that through edit, but the OGs know I don't do that shit. I keep it honest, on-air radio style, baby. If I drop the ball, I own it. It's on me. And I own this. I really felt bad. Because he had a true connection between the Senators, whom we covered last week with Walter Johnson. And the world champion Texas Rangers, whom he played for after the Senators bolted the district to play in Arlington, Texas. So, Frank Howard. Hondo. The Capital Punisher. Rest in Peace. Godspeed and time will not dim the glory of your deeds and yeah I really felt like I had to clean my mess there it bothered me all freaking week Frank Thomas you gotta be kidding me my apologies freaks but other than that I've been looking for it For a while now, in fact, the month of November is a month of some heavy hitters. Starting last week with Walter Johnson, who in my opinion is the most dominant MLB pitcher of the 20th century pre-World War II. And we go from him to arguably the most dominant hurler of the modern age, Mr. Bob Gibson. And I know... Everybody has their guy, and I get some pushback from quite a few fans about this one, that one, or the other. I get it. These these guys, I'm like, put it this way: they're all Hall of Fame pitchers, and then there's like that inner circle of Hall of Fame pitchers: the co the Seavers, the Pejos, big units. And for my money, Bob is the tribal chief of the inner table. And if I had to win today, with no more tomorrows at my disposal, well, look, I'm going with Bob Gibson, baby. Now, that's just me. And you can go to backwardskpod at gmail.com and let me know what you think. It's not a hard choice. To me, all things being relative. I think Bob Gibson is one of the most cl- clutch pitchers in Major League history. And, oh, look, would you look at the time? I got to catch these portals and wormholes as unstable as they can be. So we can look out at uh, the ball field to the west of us here at Terrapin Station. I see the catcher throwing down a second base. The umpire has called play ball. That infield is throwing that ball around. I'd like to clear this platform. Kiss and hug your loved ones. Goodbye. Let's go through the final boarding process for our BKP time travel choo -choo, as I call all aboard, and I'm going to set our time and destination this week to where it all began, November 9th, 1935, Omaha, Nebraska, as we will all bear witness to the birth and the rise of a baseball immortal, Bob Gibson. So... Hurry, hurry, step right up, make yourself comfortable, take off your shoes, open your Komodos, let's get real comfortable, I don't judge, as we head out to Nebraska in the mid-1930s now, of course we've hit on Gibby a few times here at BKP, most notably in the Black Aces show as well as the Mickey Lulich bio, those shows like all Backwards K programs are available on all platforms. Wherever you listen to your pods, or you can dig into my archives at diamondsnakejig.podbeat.com. But I digress. In 1964, after officially announcing his presence to the baseball universe by beating the Boston New York Yankees in Game 7 of the World Series for the Cardinals' first World Series title since 1946, Cards manager Johnny Keene took Bob Gibson into his office and said, Hoot, and that was his nickname given to him by the boys back then, Hoot. He says, Hoot, you're on your way. Nothing can stop you now from ghetto to glory. Neither one of the two men basking in the championship glow could have possibly known how prophetic those words would truly turn out to be. Johnny had squeezed literally every ounce he could get out of Bob's 1964 arm. And that decided Game 7. Gibbs, Gibby is running on fumes in the bottom of the night. And the game's at Old Sportsman's Park. And Game 7, it seemed to be in hand for St. Louis when the half inning begins two outs ago. With the Cardinals holding on to a 7-3 lead going into the bottom half of the night give surrenders solo shots to third baseman Cleve Boyer and shortstop Phil Lins to bring the Yanks to within two runs of tying it up. The game appears to be a apparent for St. Louis and their championship aspirations. The Cards are desperately searching for that 27th out. With Bobby Richardson at the plate, who batted 4-0-6 in the series, he set a fall classic record 13 base hits in that series already. Mickey Mantle on deck, who had already hit a three-run shot off of Gibson in the sixth. A blast that would prove to be the last of his record-setting 18 World Series home runs. And Roger Maris, the record-breaking slugger from three seasons earlier, in the hole behind Mickey. And with every last piece of God-given strength in his body, he hurls a baseball in the middle of the zone. And he challenges Richardson to hit it somewhere. And he does. A saw pop line that die. Maxwell secures in his glove for the final out and the chip. And here's the truth, man. All empires must eventually crumble to dust before they can be reborn. In retrospect, the 1964 World Series marked a turning point in the history of baseball. It was a last-fall classic for Hall of Fame legends Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford, who had led the New York franchise to 15 AL pennants and 10 world championships. Shortly after that loss, the CBS television network would take control of the Yankees and dark times loom on the horizon for the Brown Ball Club until 12 years later when an ambitious shipbuilder from Cleveland named George Buys a club and the house that Ruth built. And he rebuilds the franchise in his image. The Cardinals, on the other hand, are a freight train rolling downhill. Nothing can stop their decade of decadence. The wheels of baseball history have been set in motion. And St. louiss they're just getting started. After Johnny and Hoot leave the office to join the celebration with the team... A baseball scribe shouts out to the card skipper. Hey, Johnny. One, two, Bob looked tired out there tonight. Why'd you leave him out there instead of going to the bullpen? And Johnny turns to the reporter and says, one of my favorite baseball lines ever. Through his tears of joy, he shoots back. I had a commitment to his heart. Keenan had Jimmy's first manager of pro baseball and would later be his self-avowed savior. There were few men in Gibson's life who could have spoken more meaningful words about him at this time. Over the next 10 years, Gibson would carve out a reputation and a few ribcages as one of the most absolutely mentally and physically tough opponents to ever grace a diamond. He was a man of diabolical and tenacious competitive instincts. His battery mate, Tim McCarver, once called him the most intimidating, arrogant pitcher to ever kick up dust on the hill. His eyes smoldered at each batter, almost accusingly. He worked quickly, relying on pinpoint command of his two fastballs and vicious slider he could throw to both sides of the dish. His delivery was one where the right side of his body had jerked violently towards the first baseline, giving hitters the optical impression of a pitcher exploding towards the plate. And as you heard at the top of the show, he owned the inner half of the dish on either side. And he had no hesitation whatsoever of setting up shop there. And... The slightest transgression from his enemy, which was every batter in the National League, as well as the American League when the opportunities presented itself. Any slight or transgression he fabricated in his uber-competitive mindset came with consequences. So keep your head on a swivel when you step in the box. And don't you dare dig in. Tony Perez, big doggy from the Big Red Machine of Cincinnati, well, he did that once. Gibby's just sitting on the hill glaring at the sluggers' process and he finally yells out to the future Hall of Famer, standing 60 feet, six inches away from him, make sure you dig deep enough, it might be where I bury your ass. Gibson relished in the fear that his legend instilled in rival battles. But he always maintained. He never tried to hit a batter. Well, maybe Pete LeCocq. But I'm getting there. He he never tried to hit a batter. But if he was crowding the plate or react, or reaching over the, the dish, he had no qualms in shaving that hitter. And if he got hit, he got hit. So be it. In a 2017 interview, he acknowledges that players are different today. And he assumed... He would have many dust-ups on the bump by angry hitters charging the mound with their body armor and running mittens, looking to avenge their bruised ribs and ego. But, he insists he would have been the same type of player he was then. You you, you cannot have these hitters running the asylum. There is an order to things. He was total old school. In pro wrestling terms, he was kayfabe. He didn't fraternize with opposing players, even when he played at the All Star Games with his fellow nationally teammates. And his all time aloof behavior extended over to the press as well. The local writers loved his achievements and respected him, but only a few really knew him or understood his makeup. His competitive spirit had focused. On one goal, winning. Winning was why Bob Gibson woke up every day. It consumed him. And he was going to use every weapon in his arsenal. Every physical and mental tool he had at his disposal. He seemed to have the game day disposition of a soldier with that thousand yard stare. Who has seen the horrors of battle. And only one of us is coming out of this jungle a lot. Gibby liked the term intensity best when summarizing his pitching style, reflecting that qualities like meanness and anger were merely devices in his playbook that he exploited because of his rep. Gibson was a firm believer that baseball was as much about the mental discipline aspect as it was about physical prowess. He would often say, the part of pitching that separates the stars from everyone else is about 90% metal. And that's why it was important for me to climb into uh, into the batter's headspace without letting him inside of mine. And here we are, folks, coming out of that last wormhole... And straight to the poor side of Omaha, Nebraska. November 9th, the year of our Lord, 1935. Where Pac Robert Gibson is being born. The youngest of seven children. He was named after his father. Who died three months prior to Bob's birth. Not only did Bob never meet his father. He never even saw a photograph of the man. So he grew up without even knowing what his father looked like. His mother, Victoria worked in a laundromat and cleaned houses to make their amends. And Bob spent most of his childhood running around the Logan Fontanelle housing projects in Omaha, Nebraska. And the loss of his father, it had an enormous impact in Gibby's life as his older brother, Josh, became, became his surrogate father, his mentor, advisor, And really the catalyst towards future success, his brother was articulate and educated, earning history degrees at nearby Creighton University. And eventually Josh would become the program director at a rec center in the projects. And he spent much of his life mentoring young boys in the community. As far back as Gibby could remember, Josh was a central figure in his life he was an impressive athlete in his day with pro abilities and talents, but the color barriers were not broken in time for him, and he instead imparted his knowledge onto others. Joshua led by example. He never required more from anyone than he gave back then. As Bob used to say about his brother, all of us kids back then, we were a reflection of Josh. He would organize youth sports teams, primarily baseball and basketball at the rec center. And Bobby, always following his big brother around, spent much of his childhood watching and eventually playing with his brother. On the YMCA baseball team, the Y Monarchs, Gibby becomes a high average switch hitter with power, playing catcher and shortstop. In 1951, the Monarchs become the first black team to win the American Legion City Championship. And Bob is selected to the All-City team as a utility player. And even though Bob was becoming quite the force in baseball, his real love growing up was hoops. In addition to playing for the rec center team, he was the star of the Omaha Technical High School basketball squad for two years. And he was a unanimous choice for all-city team guard his senior year. Gibby wasn't allowed to try out for the baseball team his junior year on the grounds that he reported a day late for tryouts. But several years later, he discovered that he had been excluded because the coach at that time did not allow blacks on the team. So, instead of baseball... He tries his hand at track and field, participating in the broad jump and sprint relays, as well as setting an Omaha indoor record in the high jump, and by Gibby's senior year in high school, the baseball team has a new coach, and Bob joins the team as an outfielder and pitcher. He finishes second in BA among city players at 368, ticked. Tech wins the inner-city tournament and is selected to the all-city team as a utility player again. Upon completion of high school, the St. Louis Cardinals offered Gibby a modest contract offer, but his brother Josh turned him away, insisting that Bob go to college first, which was fine by Bob. His dream was to play basketball at the University of Indiana, for Who's a Nation. Unfortunately, his dream school turned him down. In fact, they turned down both Bob Gibson and NBA Hall of Famer Oscar Robertson that same year because, quote, they had already filled their quota of Negro players. And man, is that a butterfly and peg moment or what? A big uh, backcourt with the big O and Gibby at Indiana. It's amazing. Thanks to Josh's connection to Creighton University, Bob becomes the first African American to receive a basketball scholarship to the school. By the time his hoops career at Creighton is in the books, Gibby was the all-time leader for points per game, 20.2, and third in total points with 1,272. His number 45, just like the digits that would make his Cardinals jersey iconic, was retired by the university alongside only three other players, I'm sorry, two other players in school history, Paul Silas and Bob Portman. Gibson also played baseball for the Blue Jays, but... Baseball was really treated as a minor sport at Creighton Hill. His first baseball coach was actually Bill Fitch, who would go on to have a successful NBA coaching career during the 80s and 90s. 70s to 90s, I would say. Bob was a superb utility guy for the Jays. He played catcher, third base, and he pitched. In his senior year, he led the ne- Nebraska College Conference with a 3.33 average, and he went six and two from the bump. The Dodgers, White Sox, Yankees, Filthy, the A's—they all contacted him about playing baseball, but none of them offered what he felt was a substantial bonus. And opportunities in the NBA were also drying up, as the Minneapolis Lakers were the only team in the association to talk to him. But they never made an offer. Eventually, opportunities to play both sports would develop. But the allure of playing basketball for the world-famous Harlem Globetrotters presented itself to the dynamic athlete. The team of basketball genius was barnstorming the country, exhibiting a highly entertaining brand of hoops. Against a group of college all-stars that accompanied them on their tours. And part of their stick, they would typically go into a town and ask local college players in the cities to join the All-Star team and travel with the show. And when the Trotter showed up in Omaha in the spring of 1957, Gibson was invited to join the All-Star team as part of the show. And he obliged, late in the third quarter, with his local fan following looking on, Bob made such an impression on the traveling band of Hoops, and Showman, that they recruited him after the show. Bob, who had ironically married Charlene Johnson the day before the show, told the team he was very interested, but he couldn't possibly give them a definitive answer, or a definitive yes yet, until the baseball season was complete. The St. Louis Cardinals had renewed their interest in the athletic phenom and they were back at it kicking the tires and Peking's bomb interest to play baseball. In fact, the Cards will eventually win him over as we all know today, but Gibby negotiated a deal that would allow him to play the rest of the season on the Cards farm, after which he would link up with the Globetrotters for a four month tour with the Roaming Vagabonds. Basketball was still his first love. The speed, the athleticism, the physicality. It appealed to his legendary competitive nature. And he loved to score. He was a fiery two-guard who loved to drain buckets over helpless defenders. And his wizardry, sleight of hand. He'd be handing out dimes astounding the crowd. In arenas throughout the nation. He was quite literally... A walking triple-double waiting to happen out in the parquet. And as much as Bob loved playing poor and getting paid to play ball with the world-famous Globetrotters, he had true NBA hoop dreams to compete against the best. And with every game he played with Abe Sabastine's team, he felt like his NBA credibility was diminishing. And he began to realize he wasn't even on the radar at some point. The curtain was strong on his dream of owning the NBA Hardwoods and the relentless barnstorming schedule of the Trotters was wearing him down. Bob estimates that in his four months while with the Glow Trotters promotion, he must have played in nearly a thousand games. He was mentally and physically drained. And with his NBA dreams dashed, and the weight of the trotter schedule taking its toll, Gibson and the Cards agree on a deal that allowed Gibby to concentrate solely on baseball. So, he reports to AAA Omaha and the American Association in June of 1957. Johnny Keem, who I spoke of at the top of this biopic, decided Gibby should focus on pitching. And remember, before this... Gibby was like this super switch hitting all-city utility player dominating the game on mostly the God-given athletic advantages that he held over his lesser opponents. The fact that Johnny Keene had no predispositions over letting a black man pitch for his team in the 1950s, it made an immediate impact on Bob's competitive psyche. From day one, he loved and respected this man, saying years later... He was the closest thing to a saint I ever came across in baseball. Gave me appears in 10 games that season. Uh, pro ball, announces his first win on June 23rd, defeating Columbus, Ohio, 4-3. He posted a 2-1 record before being shuttled off to Class A Columbus, Georgia, team in the South Atlantic League in July. And it was then that... Gibson first experienced a blatantly hostile environment in which blacks were subjugated to second class citizenship at best in the everyday aspects of life. That's not to say that he didn't face racial bigotry growing up in Omaha. And Bobby should to love to tell a story about the time his brother Josh felt like. His team was being jobbed by the Umps at the behest of the Lily White fans in the stands. And Josh runs out of the dugout and pretty much challenges the umpires and anyone in the stands who wants it. Bob knew racism, but this was unapologetically blatant and in-your-face. This was different. This was the experience. The struggles of the day. And he quickly becomes aware of the extent to which racial hatred had been systemically institutionalized in virtually all aspects of Southern society. He was forced to eat and live in the, and I'm using bunny ears here, black part of town. The local fans didn't hesitate to voice their racial prejudice from the stands as Gibby found himself berated by racial taunts and language that, quite frankly, no one had ever said directly to him before. Thankfully, his time with Columbus was brief. He started eight games. He goes four and three with three point seven seven ERA in 1958 at. Cardinal Spring Training Camp in St. Petersburg, Florida. Gibson is once again subjected to living apart from his white teammates who have excellent accommodations at a swanky downtown hotel. He splits the seasons between double, triple A clubs in Omaha and Rochester and he finishes with an overall record of 8-9 with a commanding 2.84 ERA in 33 games. The league's managers, they voted his fastball the best in the league at the end of the year as a premonition of things to come. And Gibby goes into the 1959 season as a genuine candidate for the Cards rotation. But establishing himself would prove challenging, to say the least. The Cards manager, Sally Hemus, and Gibby, as well as other black players on the team. They they never saw eye to eye. And Gibson's own words, Hemus's problem with me had absolutely zero to do with baseball, judge me on the merits of my game, and treat me like I'm a player on the team. Either he disliked us deeply, or he believed that the way to motivate us was with insults. He told me and Kurt Flood we had no chance of ever being Major League Baseball players. I made the team at 59, but Hemus had me convinced I wasn't any damn good. So consequently, I wasn't. He would hold strategy meetings with the pitching staff, and we would go through our attack plan for the upcoming lineups we would be facing, and Hemus would turn to me and say, this doesn't apply to you, Bob. Implying that I'm too dumb to have a strategy to follow. Just rely on my God-given athletic talents. Gaby made his major league debut on April 15, 1959. Pitching two innings of relief in a 5 nothing loss to the Dodgers. He surrenders two of those runs when the first batter he ever faced, Jim Baxes, drops dumb. For the next two seasons, he is shuffled back and forth between St. Louis, Omaha, and Rochester. And he finally makes the team for good in June of 1960. But Solly Hemus, manager of the Redbirds, is still a problem for Gibby, and his wounded confidence. He kept calling him Bridges after Marshall Bridges, a teammate who was seven years older than Gibby, much skinnier, and was a fucking southpaw. But he was black just like me, and Gibby would opine at least Hemus got that much right. All doubts about Hemus's attitudes came to light one day in Pittsburgh when an argument between Solly and Bucko's hurler Benny Daniels turned into a fight. And after the game, the team listens as Hemus tells his club that he called Daniels a black son of a bitch, and that is when all hell broke loose. Now, Blood and Gibson, who are now best friends on and off the field, they just look at each other. And listen to their skipper. In their minds, this was the confirmation they needed to connect the dots between Hemus the man and his proclivity for racist thoughts. They've been wondering how the manager felt about them. And now their suspicions were validated. Black sons of bitches. Real fucking nice. Until then, they merely hated Hemus For his flawed baseball strategy and outdated theories. Now, they fucking hated him for who he was as a human being. And I've seen videos of him trying to spin it years later. He's a liar. I believe Gibbons. Or Gibson here. I mean, he just looks all coy with that stupid, silly grin on his face. He's lying. He had serious mental problems. At the start of the 1961 campaign, Gibby is used sparingly out of the bully, and as a spot starter before cracking the rotation, July 6th becomes Independence Day for the black players of the club when the front office gives Solly Hemis his walking papers and ushered the divisive manager out the door. In his stead, they replace him with Gibby's first pro ball skipper, the man Gibson would liken to a baseball saint, Johnny Keane. And it was a whole new baseball world for black ballplayers in St. Louis. With just one simple change in the atmosphere with this new hire. Johnny Keane was a man of great sensibility and leadership. He was a pro where winning was the bottom line. It was all he cared about. He could care less about color. If a player was plaid and could help him win He would play that dude. On the first day, he lets the team know that every day that the Cardinals take the field, while I'm manager, I'm playing my best nine that day. And Gibby can remember the empowerment he felt when those words came cascading out of Keane's mouth. At this point in the 1961 season, the Redbirds were admired in mediocrity with a 33-41 and 41 record, but Keene proved to be the healthy elixir that St. Louis needed as they go 47-33 and 33 the rest of the way and who finishes with a 13-12 and 12 record and a 3.24 ERA. With Salihimas gone and with guys like Gimme, Flood, and Bill White leading the way, The Cardinals established a cohesive atmosphere in the clubhouse that virtually eliminated the racial tensions among individuals, and this allowed the team to rally around one another and set the table for great success in the coming years. The white players on the team who were not inclined to be so open-minded were challenged by the black teammates in a way that forced them to rethink their attitudes about race. Tim McCarver from Memphis, Tennessee was hardly a beacon of progressive thinkers as a 17-year-old young, talented catcher joining the club in 1959. And he remembers two moments that began to remold the way he looked at the world. Number one, it wasn't until three weeks into his first spring training camp that he realized the black players were not allowed in the team hotel. And that began to bother him. Number two, one sweltering day. Early in his career, in the impressive Florida sun of the spring training camp, he gets on the team bus with an orange soda pop drink. And Gibby, with sweat pouring off his brow and nose, he asked McCarver if he could get a sip. And... McCarver admits that instantly he was taken aback by this request from his battery mate. This would never happen back in Tennessee where he was from. A black man back at home wouldn't have the audacity to ask a white man for a sip of his pop. And McCarver froze like a deer in the headlights and he sheepishly told Bob he would save him some. But that interaction gave Tim a new perspective to face As a member of the 1960s St. Louis Cardinals. As he saddled the bus for the rest of that ride. Thinking about what had just occurred. McCarver realized that Gibby. Used. His own prejudices. To put him in a most curious. And untenable position. And it was a teaching moment for the young catcher. Gibson's goal was not to embarrass his teammate. Or exasperate racial tensions between them rather it was to challenge his white teammates for them to confront their ingrained and taught racial bigotries and that bus ride changed McCarver forever he and Gibson became close friends and are linked together until Bob's death and as a result of this They have quite a successful relationship with one another. And I say close friends, although you might not think that was the case if you ever saw Mac have to go to the mill, the hill, to rein in the Baseball Immortal. (laughs) Before he died not too long ago, a couple months back, or a year ago I believe, McCarver said that Gibby taught him a good deal about relationships with other human beings. If I came into that first spring training camp with many of the preoccupations of my birthplace, then it was Gibson, more than any other black man, to help me overcome whatever latent prejudices I may have still had. The team becomes as close to being free of racist poison and as diverse a group of 20th century Americans that you will ever see. The Cardinals became the first team in baseball to fully integrate hotel rooms on the road. Few of these players came into the organization with this mindset as a young prospect on the rise. But they changed. People can change if properly challenged. And the initiative in building that spirit came from the black players. The Flux, Bill White, Gabby, later Lou Brock. The black players in the locker—they just wanted life to be more pleasant, and it began with Bob smashing traditional barriers to establish lines of honest communication between brothers. For example, Gibby would say, "Look at my relationship with McCarver—just a rugged white kid from Tennessee—and we were black cat cats. Most of us from ghettos across America, but we found common ground with Mac." Without imposing our blackness onto him or his whiteness upon ourselves, we simply insisted on knowing him and for us to be known in return. And much like this great country of ours, once all of us come together in a common goal, regardless of race, gender, religion, sexual orientation, or any of the other stupid reasons we use to define ourselves from one another. We are the most unstoppable force on the planet, people. Unfortunately, race, politics, religion, all these characteristics are being weaponized and used against one another today in society, which only keeps us from meeting our high bar of evolving potential, if you ask me. The St. Louis Cardinals of the 1960s, they didn't have that problem. They were a united front in the face of battles said to be played out on baseball fields throughout the National League. And manager Johnny Keene and the front office brass were quietly building an empire killer in St. Louis. And look, I think that's what we're going to bring out this week, team heads. We've covered a lot of ground in the first act of the Bob Gibson bio. And when we come back, we're going to bear witness to his rocket ship that is has set the shoot off into the baseball universe and set the standard of true modern day baseball aces. I don't charge for the content here and I never will. Please support the sponsors who support your grassroots baseball podcast show, Budweiser. Drink lots of it responsibly, of course. And Lavaro's Hand Cleaner after your shellfish dinners or Buffalo Wings buffets. No mo no spicy, smelly hands. Let me hydrate, rip a few tubes on the bobber. BRB breaks with the rest of the Bob Gibson shell. Backwards K-Pod. Where we collect ballplayers and the stunts.
1: He's he all over the field on defense, trying to catch everything in sight. I'm going to let the next pitch ball right
2: past the fight. There's a new
1: home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron, Lee Tyler.
0: unbelievable place you will ever see by a trip-top. Howdy, y'all. It's the Pod Squad, stage Geek, executive producer of the Backwards K Pod. For the last few months, I've been telling you about our sponsor, Lafarose Pages, a powerful trifecta of products that eliminates fish, seafood, and bait odors as well as the spices on your hands from seeds, crabs, and delicious crawfish boil. And now, this amazing grassroots company has added a buffalo wing hand cleaner. These are the only soaps and wipes on the planet specifically formulated to be used after eating spicy food or after a long day of fishing. Not only does the fish and hand cleaner get rid of face bumps, hand cleaner, crawfish hand cleaner removes the spicy boxes around your mouth and on your hands an ingenious invention by a retired Navy shipmate of Jason. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is take care of family. Till the end of September, Laugh Hand Cleaner is offering all VKP listeners an amazing deal and hopes you give them a shot. It's a buy one, get one free deal, hot wing hand cleaner wipes, fishing hand cleaner wipes, or soap seafood hand cleaner. Buy one, get one. Only advertised products on Backwards Case pods that Jake and I believe in and use personally. After ripping up the golf course and watching football, there's nothing I love more than throwing some bait in water and cracking a cold bud headache You can check out these amazing products by going to crawfishhandcleaner.com or you can call the home offices at 713 588 To get that BOGO deal, please use the code Summer 23. For your fishing vacation you're planning or the shellfish buffalo wing piece you're preparing, get yourself this groundbreaking product to protect you from smelly, spicy hands. That's com, or call 713-588-0290. For the buy one, get one deal, use promo code SUMMER23. Fishing along the bank of your favorite river, listening to DKT, sounds like a great idea. In fact, hey Mark, where are my poles at? I'm John Fisher. we
1: set a new National League record for earn run average this year, 1.12. A 2-2 pitch to McCollum. Born in Baltimore. A 2-2 pitch. A 1-2 pitch to Gash.
0: Came out in a blazing fastball. Oh, look at that third ball. Right. Tigers have two down, nobody on. And he struck out the side. And Gibson is now struck out five. Three
1: two pitch. Strike three. He's out. Strike out for the pitcher and put out for the catcher. Here's a three two pitch. Strike three. The two strike pitch is strike three. They won't get to in this Nine strikeouts for five gets. Them.
0: Stanley Robinson
1: strikes out. <laughs> Lives in Detroit, Michigan. on him, two strikes and the ball. <coughs> Come on, swing
2: yeah.
0: him. He's in the crowd. was his 15th strikeout.
1: Over them. A new world record of 17 strikeouts
0: in one game.
2: Welcome back to BKP, where we collect ballplayers into stories, as this week we are in the midst of doing a deep dive into the fascinating life of one of the greatest pitchers in the history of the game, Mr. Bob Gibson. And before I broke out, I was recounting about his childhood growing up in poor, uh, impoverished in a project housing complex in Omaha, Nebraska. His father died three months before his birth, and he looks to his older brother, Josh, who was college educated and has a purpose in life to help his little brothers and sisters get out of the projects through athletics and education. He is a dominant student athlete in high school, excelling at track and field, baseball, And his number one love, basketball, he is repeatedly recognized as one of the great prep athletes in Nebraska, and he receives multiple All-Omaha City honors in basketball and baseball. And when he graduates high school, the cards offer a deal to him to become a pro baseball player, but his brother Josh puts the kibosh on that shit and gets his little brother enrolled To a full athletic scholarship, the first ever for a black athlete to Creighton University. And while there, he dominates on the hardwood and Diamond alike. But it is not, he's not thrilled with the baseball offers thrown his way. And other than the Lakers, no one in the NBA was calling, even though he averaged 20 points a game and had his jersey hanging from the gym rafters. So, the Harlem Globetrotters identify Bob as someone who can get down with them. And they offer him a deal, which Bob accepts. But the Globetrotter run only lasts for four months as those same old St. Louis Cardinals from four years ago come back sniffing around Gibby's Fire Hydrant. And they sweeten their offer. And Bob is on his way. His first manager in Pro Bowl is Johnny Keane. He loves a man. He respects. There's mutual respect there as Keane has respect for his talent from day one. And he, and he makes Bob a pitcher. Growing up in Omaha, Gimme never really had a set position. He was a power hitting switch hitter. That can play pretty much any possessed position at a high level due to his sheer athletic abilities, and he moves up through the system and eventually lands with the Cards. But he has a major obstacle in Skipper Salahemus, who has a problem with Kimmy for some for, for reasons that have nothing to do with baseball, and the team suffers because of his archa- archaic 1860s mindset. And his flawed baseball theory profile. Finally he's fired. Johnny Keene is brought up from the farm. To manage the big club. The team has fought through. Their silly racial tensions. And going into 1962. This team. Is a cohesive unit. Of all sorts of Americans. They are united. Which makes them dangerous. And they're just two years away. From reducing the latest Yankees dynasty to rubble with their 1964 World Series championship I hit on at the very beginning. And with an improved fastball and slider command, as well as the confidence of his new manager, Gibby takes his first steps towards stardom in 1962 going to 15-3 with a 2.85 ERA. And earning his first All-Star period. His season was cut short in September by a broken ankle he suffered in practice. And he wasn't very conscientious about rehabbing his ankle during the offseason. And as a result, he starts the 1963 season slowly. The Cards remained in the pennant race until September before falling off. KB won 18 games that year. And the Nucleus of the Empire Killer 1964 cards has been established. But it didn't come easy. St. Louis was far back in the standings in June of 1964 when the Cardinals made a trade for the underachieving young rival Cubs outfielder, Lou Brock. And paired with Kurt Flood at the top of the lineup in front of either Bill White or Dick Grout and then Ken Boyer, Brock saw his bat glow white hot and the Redbirds slowly but surely began climbing back into the race. Still though, by late July, their prospects seemed very remote. So much so that owner Augustus Bush openly courted Leo the Limp de Rocher a link to the last World Series 1 in franchise history to take over for Johnny Keane. The Limp would rebuff the offer, but in August... Bush fires, GM, Bing DeVine. And the Cardinals were six games back with a mere two weeks left on the schedule. But an epic collapse by the Phillies who lost 12 of their final 15 games, including a stretch of 10 in a row at one point. They allowed St. Louis in the door and the card snatched the pennant in the last game of the regular season. Gibson pitched four innings in that must-win final game. Getting the win against the Mets for his 19th of the year, after bearing the indignity of having the owner openly recruit managers to fill his job during a World Series run, Johnny Keane resigns immediately following the Game Seven win, and is replaced by Red Shane Deist. Team cohesion, a chemistry. It wasn't enough to carry the cards to the 1965-66 seasons. Although Gibson was stellar, collecting 20 and 21 wins in those campaigns, respectively. Production out of White and Boyer, it dipped precipitously in 1965. And after that season, those two players along with Grote were traded. After finishing in 7th place in 1965, the Cards only managed a 6th place finish in 1966. In 1967, a resurgent offense led by Orlando Cepeda, as well as the development of young pitchers, including Steve Carlton, Ray Washburn, Dick Hughes, and Nelson Browse. They saw the Cards leave all the other NL teams in the proverbial dust of their wake. They won 101 games, took the pennant by 10.5 over San Francisco. And the development of these young stud pitchers. It was critical for the Cards. Pennant drive, as Gibby was forced to the DL with a broken leg, suffered at the hands of a Roberto Clemente line drive comebacker. Now, Bob would face three more batters after taking that line drive off the leg until it finally just snapped like a pencil, right above his ankle, on the mound. He returned to the rotation in September. Finishes the season with a 13-7 record. He would win all three with starts in the 1967 World Series as the Cards beat the Red Sox in seven All three of his starts were complete games, and it gave him five World Series wins, cementing his reputation as Big Game Bob. That dude you wanted in the trenches, 60 feet, 6 inches away from the enemy. He also capped his Game 7 win with a home run and won the World Series MVP. And, folks, if there was ever a Red Sox team that was destined to reverse the curse of the Bambino. It was surely the 1967 team. They had everything to get to Game 7. But, in retrospect, they were one player short winning it all. And that player was Bob Gibson. And what has been called the year of the pitcher. The 1968 Major League Baseball campaign saw many amazing pitching feats being played out in the AL and NL with Bob Gibson being the pogo point. In the American League, Tigers ace Denny McLean became the first 30-game winner since Dizzy Dean of the 1934 Gas House Gang. In the NL, Don Drysdale set a record with 58 and two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings pitched. But Gibson, I've shown them all, finishing with a 22-9 and record and a minuscule 1.12 ERA, the modern-day record for the lowest ERA still to this day. And I often think about that 1.12 ERA. That's just sick. I hear people explain it this way to baseball novices they will say that means he's barely giving up more than a run every single every nine innings pitch. To which I like to correct that person and say it actually means he barely gave up a run per nine innings. I mean, he's closer to .99 than he is to two, right? He had his own streak of 47 consecutive scoreless innings that summer. He threw 28 complete games, including 13 shutouts. He was... Voted NL MVP by unanimous selection. Won the that NL Cy Young. I mean, what a fantastic season. And here is the great Bob Gibson putting that magical 1968 season in its proper context and perspective 50 years later, back in 2018.
0: 68 a 1.12 ERA, 268 strikeouts. Somehow he lost nine games.
1: Yeah, I'm still mad about that. You should be. <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, 22 oh, and 9,
1: and you lose nine games with a 1.12. Well, let, let me interject something.
0: Bob finally decided that every time he pitched, we had to face the ace
1: of the other staff. We'd, ha- we'd have to face Marichal. Perry, Drysdale, Koufax, the likes of that. Ferguson Jenkins with the Cubs. Ferguson
2: Jenkins with the Cubs. Yeah.
1: I talked with Red about that one time. I said, Red, uh, you pitch me against the other team's best pitcher uh, all the time. Why don't we switch that around a little bit? He said, well, if you beat them, we can sweep. I said, if they beat me, they can sweep. Even though you had pretty good backup in those days, too. (laughs) yeah. yeah, Nelson
0: Browles, Ray Washburn, Steve Carlton. Dick Hughes. Dick Mm -hmm. Hughes in 67. We're underway here in the second inning. The great Bob Gibson, the Hall of Famer, is with us. 1968 for you. uh, Does it define you, you think, in many ways, the 1.12? No.
1: You know, I had an exceptional year that year. Um, and I don't think that you can define a player by the best year he ever had. you got to kind of take a uh, look at his whole career then you come to an average, and that's pretty much who he is. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember one year, Joe Torrey hit 353 or something like that, and then the next year he was hitting 300, and he was trying to pull his hair out, even though he didn't have much hair left. He had 230 hits that year. Yeah, and uh, I asked him, I says, uh, he was agonizing about it, and I said, Joe, uh, answer this for me. He said, what? I said, do you really think you're a 353 hitter? He said, no. I, said, I rest my case. There you go.
2: And I love that story because, you know, you see Bob Gibson, you see this fiery competitive soul out on the mound, just working the other team, I mean, working them. And you hear him 50 years later, put it all into context. Look, I'm not a 1.12 ERA pitcher. Joe Torre isn't a 358 hitter. You take the whole totality of a man's career. I love that take right there. The Cardinals would outdistance themselves from San Francisco by nine games to capture that second NL Pen in a row. Gibson's sheer belligerent takeover in nineteen sixty eight was the driving force to narrow the strike zone and lower the mound from fifteen inches to ten where it sits today. All this in an effort to invigorate offense in the nineteen sixty nine season. That's like making the pool longer because Michael Phelps is too damn good. It's like raising the basketball rim two more feet off the ground because Jordan scores too much. It's like shrinking the goalposts to five feet apart because Kyle Tucker kicks too many field goals from 50 yards away. So when someone asks me who I take in a must-win, no tomorrow scenario, I say Bob Gibson unequivocally. They lowered the mound because of that dude. I talked about the 1968 World Series in great detail. And the roly-poly Mickey Lolich bio. But in game one, the baseball universe was anticipation of watching McLean and Gibson get after it to open the series. Bob puts on a show striking out 17 Tigers and a record breaking performance for the win. The Detroit Tigers were on their heels all day. They hadn't seen anyone in the AL that threw with competitive purpose like Bob Gibson that day. Hall of Famer Al Kaline once said Bob Gibson in game one of the 1968 World Series is the absolute best pitcher. I have ever seen in my life. In Game 4 of the series, he hits another World Series home run. Just like he did the year before. He threw another complete game victory. And now the Cards hold a 3-1 game advantage over Detroit. For his record career, 7th consecutive complete game World Series victory. Detroit wins Game 5 and 6 setting the stage for the showdown between Bob Gibson and left-hander Mickey Lowlich, who also has two complete game victories in the series himself. The game was scoreless until the 7th, when the Tigers capitalized on an error by Gibby's best friend, Kirk Blood, in the 7th to take the lead. And Mickey Lowlich and company would... Well, he would pitch his third complete game of the series, as the Tigers shocked the Cards... And the invincible Gibson beating them 3-1 and snatching the crown from St. Louis. And things went downhill for the Cubs after the '68 season. Although Gibson still had productive years left on his arm. Cepeda, the clubhouse leader, was traded to the Braves with Joe Torre. Gibby went 20-13 in 1969 with a 2.818 ERA. As his first year with the lower mound, it saw him give up a whole run more per, per nine innings. But still, stellar nonetheless. The Cards would drop to fourth in the new NL East division. And although the Cards struggled, Gibby put together his second NL Cy Young campaign in 1970. With 23 wins, the last time he would meet the Black Aces threshold of 20 wins in a season as an African-American pitcher. The record slipped to 16-13 to in 71, but on August 14th, at Three River Stadium, Gibby throws a no-no at the Pittsburgh Pirates, who were on their way to winning a World Series championship that year. He rebounds for 19 wins in 72... And he made his first. And he made his last All-Star appearance. In 1973, with the Cards, uh, they're in contention when Gibby tears Cardinals in his knee while running the bases. And without their heartbeat, the Cardinals went into cardiac arrest, even though uh, eventually... Surrendering the East pennant by a game and a half to those New York Mets. Gibson finished the season with a 12-10 and 10 record. In 1974, he became increasingly apparent that Gibson just didn't have the stamina and strength to pitch with his overall ferocity that had propelled him and his legendary status. His personal life weighed heavy on him as well as he and Charlene divorced. He reached the 3,000 strikeout benchmark on July 17, 1974. In a game versus the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati Reds striking out Cesar Geronimo to attain the mark. The first pitcher ever in National League history to do so. And two quick things about that before I forget. Gaylord Perry would become the second in a pitcher to achieve the 3,000 strikeout threshold when he fans Dodgers' Joe Simpson while playing for the Friars in 1978. So, as the conclusion of the 1978 season, you have only three pitchers in the 3,000 strikeout club. Walter Johnson, Bob Gibson, and Gaylord Perry. With... God knows what is flying off the bat, uh, off to that ball as it heads towards the dish. Uh, eventually, Carlton and Ryan are going to join Perry as well. And I mentioned this before in the Nolan Ryan show, but it bears repeating. Red's outfielder, Cesar Geronimo, has the dubious distinction of being the strikeout victim number 3,000 for two different pitchers, as he was the batter when Bob Gibson... And Nolan Ryan reached their infamous mark, and Geronimo likes to joke that he was simply at the right place at the right time. Even though Gibby is in decline and personal problems are circling him in his private life, the Cards compete in 1974 and are in the NLE's contention to the bitter end for the, till the last game of the season. Their pendant aspirations for the season were dashed. In the last game, when Gibby gives up an eighth, running, eighth inning dong to expose Mike Jorgensen. Uh, backbreaking run for a 3-2 loss. And for the first time since 1960, Gibby goes home with a losing record of 11-13. and The 1975 season is Gibby's last, and he didn't pitch well. The years of complete games and innings amassed have finally taken his toll, and he eventually was demoted to the bully. He picks up uh, his last Major League win on July 27th in a relief appearance versus Filthy. A few days later, he comes out of the bully with his team down 7-6 to to the Cubs, and with the bases loaded, two outs, he serves up a grand slam to Pete LeCocq, and watches the Cubs go up eleven to six for the win. Afterward, he retires shortstop Don Kessinger for his final batter based in his MLB career. And the funny thing is, ten years later, at an old timers exhibition game put on by the rival Cubs and Cards, Bob Gibson is on the bump one last time when Pete Lecox steps to the plate. He smiles at Gibby, but the icon has his game-day poker face on. And with the second pitch, Gibson drills Lecoq in the ribs with a pitch. As the crowd is roaring, Bob watches Lecoq walk down the first with a smile on his face. And after the game, Bob Casas walks up to his good friend, Bob Gibson, and he says, Gibby! What the hell was that all about with LeCocq? And Bob recounts the Grand Slam he hit off of him in his last game of his career. And Constance says, Jesus Christ, Bob, that was 10 goddamn years ago. And Gibson looks at his dear friend and he says, Bob, there has to be balance in baseball. And on that balance, Pete Lecoq has since said, said it was the proudest moment of his career. Even more so than the grand slam he dropped on Gibby's lips. But the shot that he took at his ribs from the fire right hander ranks above that, the fact that the great Bob Gibson cared enough to remember me on his shit list and then drill me because of it, that's well, a badge of honor. I, I wear you know, I wear that proudly. After his career was up, Bob bounced all over the place and kept active. He owned and operated successful restaurants. He took part in public works projects back home in Omaha, Nebraska. He tried some entrepreneurial ventures. Made guest spots on Cardinals TV to visit his old friend McCarver in the booth. Did some coaching and scouting. But most of all, he played the role... A baseball's ambassador for pitchers. And he was beloved and admired by all accounts by everyone who came into contact with him after his career had ended. Gone was that tough guy, exterior of the fierce warrior looking to eat your heart out on the field. And in his place was a well thought out individual with perspective about his time and place. And not only baseball but American history. After fighting pancreatic cancer for more than a year, Bob Gibson died at the age of 84 on October 2nd, 2020. Just a month after his longtime Hall of Fame friend and teammate, Lou Brock. And looking back on his moment of baseball time, Bob Gibson had this to say.
1: My baseball career started, I guess, when I was about 10 years old. And I had a an older brother, Josh. He's the one responsible for me learning all of the fundamentals of the game. And by God, did he teach some fundamentals. As far as my playing is concerned, I guess I would, I would have to say that there, there are a number of people that helped me grow up. My first manager in baseball, Johnny Keane, he showed me that he had confidence in me, and I guarantee you that nobody can participate in any kind of sports without confidence. And when I realized that he had confidence in me, then I felt that I had a lot in myself. Rich Schengbees, he probably had more confidence than, than anyone He's probably responsible for me winning as many ball games as I did. Greg would leave me in there, regardless of whether the score was 20 to nothing. He figured that I would hold him and we'd get 21. Playing baseball was my life. And it's something that I, I devoted 100% to. One writer asked me what did I want to be remembered as. And I thought about it. And I said that uh, I want to be remembered as a person, a competitor, that gave 100% every time I went out on the field. Sometimes I wasn't too good, but nobody could accuse me of cheating them out of what they paid to see.
2: And folks, I could have said better. I think that's where I'm going to uh, put a backwards rap on that blunt with a pearl baby. And step on out. I'm so proud to have Gibby in our collection here at BKP. One of the inner circle Hall of Famers. Who won't be soon forgotten. And before I head out like a baby. Let's take one final look. At those oh so lovely. Bob Gibson Hall of Fame stats. Okay. Let's pull this up here. Pack Robert Gibson. Right-handed pitcher, number 45, has been retired from posterity by the St. Louis Cardinals. He was born on November 9, 1935, so four days prior to the release of this pod, we celebrated his 80th birthday posthumously. He died October second, 2, 2020, and he's buried at Evergreen Memorial Cemetery in Omaha, Nebraska. And 2020 was a hard year. I mean, we lost like seven Hall of Famers that year. And Bob was one of them. I can't believe it's been four years already. On April 15th, he becomes the 11,620th player in baseball history when he debuts versus the Dodgers pitching two innings and giving up two earned. The boys called him Hoot or Gibby. 17-year Major League Baseball career, all spent with the cards of St. Louis. Nine-time All-Star 1964-1967 World Series MVP. 1968-1970 NL Cy Young Award winner. Nine-time Gold Club winner. His 89-point war... 89.1 War is ranked 47th all-time, and his 81.7 Pitching War is 25th all-time. A 251 and 174 career lifetime win-loss record, with a 591 winning percentage, 2.91 ERA, a 2.89 FIP, 1.118 WIP, 525 games, 482 starts, 255 complete games, the 73rd most in the game's history, 56 shutouts, the 13th most in MLB history, 3,884.1 innings pitched, 16,068 batters faced, 3,117 strikeouts to 1,336 walks surrendered. And let's take a real quick look at those World Series numbers. It's one of the things. Now, it's one thing to come up big during the regular season. It's another to dominate on the big stage with the bright lights. Now, ask Clayton Kershaw. I'm just saying. And nine World Series starts giving with 7-1 with a microscopic 1.89 ERA three complete games, two shutouts and 81 innings pitched, 92 92 strikeouts in those 81 innings pitched, a .89 whip, and he held batters to a 211 batting average in World Series play. In 1981, his first year of eligibility, the BBWA voted at an 84% clip, which seems low to me. I mean, who's not voting for Bob fucking Gibson? Rivera gets 100%, but Gibby's at 84.
0: <sighs>
2: I'll never stand the Hall of Fame voters. But anyway, Gibby gets 84% of the vote in 1981 by the writers to earn inclusion in the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages, this is the story of Bob Gibson. I am truly proud to have Gibby in our BKP collection. I'm proud to have this platform where I can opine the seams, and I am most certainly proud to have you as an audience. Thank you for taking time out of your 24-hour day to listen. And I promise, Reese, I'll try to be even better for you next week. And I'm curious. I I really would like to know who you would start if you were faced with a Game 7. And let's make it modern pitchers. If you'd like to answer that, I ain't hard to find. I'm all tangled up in the web, brah. You can answer this many ways. The show email address is backwardskpod at gmail.com. Our Twitter feed is at back underscore k underscore podcast. My personal feed is at jrabby1, that's jrobbie one. That's j r o b b i e and the number one. Please subscribe and follow for our YouTube and TikTok channels. Backwards K Pod. The show website is diamondsnakejake dot dot com, or you can always seek me out on the Facebook private group page. The Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Answer the questions so I know you're not a bot for Putin. Come on in and join the chaos. So, I got to get you freaks back to your loved ones. Waiting patiently for your return to Terrapin Station. I will never, ever... Charging freaks for the baseball content here at BKP. No Twitch, no Patreon, no pay-to-play subscriptions. I will find other ways to make my venture work. I'm just going to keep coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Jolton Joe DiMaggio, baby. As I bend baseball space and time... To get you back to Terrapin, I can see the Bob Gibson story getting smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror. So once again, I turn my steely-eyed attention on our never say die baseball hydra. I pull the katana blade from under my kimono, and I chop the head off that beast. Only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. And next week. We're going to talk about a true baseball tragedy. Lyman Bostock. I mean, this guy had it all. He had the looks, the athleticism, and the prowess to become one of the most dynamic players of the 1980s before he was murdered in the streets of Gary, Indiana, robbing the baseball universe. Of a true baller. Lyman Stock, folks. A story that should never be forgotten. But hey, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and this story. Once again, thanks for stopping by the dojo this week. I love you guys. Please share the show with your CMET buddies. Let them know it's available on all platforms wherever you listen to your shows. Please rate and review me as you see fit. I ain't scared. I do what I do. When I do it, I do it better than anyone else. Gibson got me pumped, ready to compete. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch like a bored AF, by all means, take those little humans outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless. And win the day, and like my boy Shaylen Brand told me in our one-on-one smart session in the dojo last year, you go to hell, Andy Bennett. See you, freaks, next week with the line of Stock show, freaks. I'm throwing up my Gunnar Hendersons to all y'all. My deuces, baby. Peace.